Amen. In the middle of 1863, the American Civil War was in one of its most decisive moments. Both sides fighting for their definition of freedom, both sides fighting fiercely to bring a quick end to an already bloody war. And while in 1863, two armies duked it out on the killing fields in Virginia and in Georgia and in Pennsylvania, thousands of miles away across an ocean, there was a sculptor in Rome who was carving a 20-foot statue of a woman. And this lady, upon her face, had carved a crest full of stars. And in her hands was made a shield with stars and stripes. This statue was loaded up onto a transport ship bound for America. On the way, the transport ship encountered what sailors would call a ship roller. It was a storm so fierce that the crew began to throw over the cargo in order to prevent the ship from capsizing. Finally, the men, terrified from the fear of death and the fear of drowning, they began to untie the 20-foot statue to roll it into the Atlantic Ocean. In that moment, the captain stepped forward and fired a single shot into the air. The stunned sailors drew back as the captain walked and stood in front of the statue. The captain said simply this, I quote, To get to her, you'll have to get through me. We'll sink before we ever throw liberty away. As the Americans continued to do battle, there were some Italian sailors and some American carpenters that were fitting in this statue on top of the rotunda of what we know now, knew then, as the Capitol building on Capitol Hill, where Lady Liberty stands today. But it may not have been there unless one man had the courage to stand up for the cause of freedom. In another world, almost 3,000 years ago, the Israeli people, had been suffering and enduring almost four centuries of slavery, being some of the lowest class slave laborers in the ancient empire of Egypt. They suffered. They were not free to have male children. And they were free to have them, not free to let them live. (laughs) They had to acknowledge Egyptian gods and idols. They worked long, grueling hours at the hands of Egyptian slave laborers. They... They made bricks. They were slaves. They had no rights. They had little free time, no days off. They could not form an army, nor could they train for war. They lived a life of captivity. And unless Egypt would let them go, they had no hope of anything ever changing. One day, a hero came along. His name was Moses, only he wasn't the one who freed the people. A God named Yahweh wore down the king of Egypt with miracles and plagues. The man Moses was too afraid even to speak to the Egyptian king. After miracles and plagues, 
the king was persuaded to let these enslaved people go. But then in a sudden moment of rage, the same king bent out on the annihilation of the Jews. And that same God who had saved the slaves from suffering but was now parting the Red Sea and destroying an enemy that was bent on denying them the right to live. But it may never have happened unless one man stood for the cause of freedom. Forty years had gone by, and now God was not only rescuing the Hebrews from a life in a land of slavery, but he was also going to establish them in a life and land of freedom. As Israel began to settle Canaan, they were tasked with driving out the evil vortex of kingdoms that had metastasized into an aggressive cancer in the land. But Israel had learned to fight. God had taught them the need, the cost, and the value for fighting for personal freedom. First, God freed them. And then he showed them how to remain free. Joshua stood up. Joshua, the great military general, entrusted with leading the armies to gain their personal freedom. He stood up, he looked at the assembly of Israel, and he said, we can do this. We can beat these guys. And under his leadership, Israel cleared a swath of land 90 miles long, 30, feet, 30 miles wide, 30 feet wide. <laughs> 30 miles wide. But it may never have happened unless one man stood up to lead the cause of freedom. After several centuries, however, it became apparent to many of these Hebrews, many of these Israelites, many of these Jews, that no matter what their political or personal freedoms were or were not, they were still in captivity. Empires had come and gone, the Davidian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and now they were under the Roman Empire. But there was a different kind of slavery being recognized and a different kind of problem. They began to realize that our inner desires, our inner appetites, our inner thoughts, our inner reactions and responses, our inner behaviors were being dominated by a sinful nature from which we could not figure out how to break free. Just like the Israelites in Egypt, if nobody came to the rescue, we would never be free from sin's power over us and within us. Prophets had spoken about it. Kings had written about it. Singers had sung about it. But the conclusion was, our sin was always before us, leading to a common destiny called Sheol, Sheol, the grave. And it seemed at this time that not even Moses or his laws could help. If nothing had happened, nothing would have ever changed until, until a man named Jesus Christ proclaimed with his death and with his resurrection a very simple statement. Your captivity in sin is over. I have freed you. Your captivity is over. 
your captivity to sin, your captivity to brokenness, your captivity to anger, your captivity to bitterness, your captivity to unforgiveness, your captivity to judgmentalism and criticism, your captivity to addiction is broken, your captivity to abuse, and perhaps most of all, your captivity to fear, particularly the fear of death. Your captivity is over. You can choose to live by the Spirit and resist the demands of the flesh. And it never could have happened unless one man died for the cause of freedom. Point number one. The story of Christian freedom begins with freedom of choice. If you turn with me to Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, Joshua says an amazing statement. The Israelites are slaves and God frees them. The Israelites are wandering in the desert and God leads them. The Israelites are not even really a a, a cohesive people and God makes them one. And Joshua leads the armies of Israel and clears out the promised land for them to live in. And then he says, I think what is a a, a statement that blows my mind. He says in verse 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, what? What? If serving the Lord seems undesirable, this is the God who freed us. This is the God who fed us. This is the God who led us. This is our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus, the God. What are you saying, Joshua? But if serving the Lord seems undesirable, why even go there, right? But he's got a point he's making. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, which God you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, those were the moon gods, the the moon worshipers, Or the gods of the Amorites, the the current Canaanite practices of religion, that if I gave you 60 seconds of what that was, it would offend most of your ears? Or the God who saved you? And he says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You'd think Joshua, this great general that wields so much power and so much influence would say, you know what? You don't got choice. We have got to serve this God. This God saved us. This God healed us. This God brought us through. But even at the end, after God had saved them, given them this whole new place, he does not remove the choice. He does not force them to worship him. And Joshua says, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to read to you the First Amendment. I want you to hear the parallels here. The First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States reads, And Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. This amendment comes right out 
of God's playbook in Joshua chapter 24. Adam and Eve had a choice. Cain and Abel had a choice. Moses had a choice. David had a choice. Even Jesus had a choice. You and I have a choice. Since the dawn of time, each human being at some point in their life has had to make this choice because God is a God of freedom, freedom of choice. Number two, we progress oftentimes, as you see the pattern, from this freedom of choice to seeing freedom as, as, as freedom from God. Turn with me to Judges chapter 2 in verse 10. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 reads like this. And after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, after they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They didn't know the God who saved them. They didn't know Egypt. They didn't know the wandering in the desert. They didn't know all the wars that secured for them the backyard that they play in. They didn't know all this. Then it says in verse 11, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, other gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. Now, forget for a moment allegiance to gods. God saved them and made them a people these other gods hadn't. Anybody, anybody can look at that and say, Ouch. That... God didn't deserve that. I mean, anybody, if you don't follow God, if God rescues you from slavery, feeds you in the wilderness, and then brings you to the promised land, and says, now you have the choice. And they say, all right, well, our moms and dads knew you, but we didn't, so we're choosing against you. Anybody can kind of see the, the slam that that can be. Simple logic makes it so clear. I want to submit to you three possible reasons as to why this generation may have made this choice. And the first one is this, that the previous generation had failed to effectively hand down the teachings and relationship with Yahweh that they had enjoyed. And that's always, it's always a possibility. We see this throughout history. You see God spring up a revival in one generation, only three, four down to have the effects of that often blurred and lost and gone. Number two, it could be that the new generation compared gods. The Hebrew God kind of looked like a God of restraint. You know, a God where you couldn't, you know, you, there, there's some restraints. You read, you know, book of Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, you can see, man, there's, there's some things that, that God cares about that our village doesn't, does and doesn't do. And then you can look at the pagan gods and say, man, these are the gods of excess. These are the gods of just no holds bars. I don't have to worry about anything. I mean, you know, they, they could just do a direct comparison and say, you know what? I think I'd rather not go with the God of restraint and go with the gods of excess. Or I'd like to submit to you a third option, which... I personally think was probably one of, the, one of the greater ones, in addition to the other two, is that the new generation had not known the slavery or hardship of Egypt. 
I often, uh, when I'm talking with my parents, I often hear this, where their parents thought that they were a spoiled generation because they didn't have to endure the Great Depression and then, of course, the big defining event in their lives, World War II. My mom and dad would say that. That's all our moms and dads would talk about. What did you do during the war? How did you make it through the Depression? And they would all talk about how cities and neighborhoods and people would band together. They'd all talk about blue stars hanging on their window, blue stars that would turn to gold stars hanging on their window. They would all talk about the sacrifice it took to keep this country together. But of course, my parents had a lesser version of that. And then, of course, you get to my generation, and now I'm, I'm, I'm two generations away from a depression and a world war. You see what I'm getting at here? Sometimes when, when you're not the one having to endure the hardship of it, you can lose the value of it or not see it or experience clearly. Another ge- generation rose up. They didn't know Egypt. They didn't know slavery. They didn't, they didn't know God's miraculous hand and all that. Memorial Day, and I, 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 wrote, I want to read this as written. This is from the bottom of my heart. Memorial Day is a reminder to those who have never fought a war. Do not forget those who have and why they fought it. Which leads us to point number three. Freedom of choice, which we can freely choose our freedoms from God. Once we realize that freedom from Christ doesn't work, we change the freedom from Christ to actually finding freedom in Christ. Yeah, if you look at your notes, this is a play on of prepositions. Freedom of Christ, freedom, freedom of choice, freedom from Christ, freedom in Christ, freedom for Christ to serve him. So you, there, there's a play on there of words. But this one is, is perhaps the pinnacle of what I'm trying to get at this morning. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 is our verse for this morning. It says simply this. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And I, you know, I've, I've long been trying to figure out how do you explain this without getting too legalistic. If I began to describe Christian freedom in terms of, 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 of things that are healthy to do and things that are not healthy to do, so quickly we can, as Americans, build a list of what freedom in Christ is and what it's not. But freedom in Christ, while we can make all the lists we want, very easily spoken, our freedom in Christ is subordinating and surrendering our lives to him. Because he knows so clearly and so, so uh, 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 concisely sin's desire to dominate every single part of our life. And we may not always see it so clearly because there may be some things that don't seem like it's such a big deal. I saw him a little critical. I saw him a little this and that. The problem is when you package it all together, I don't know about you, but I've had huge embarrassing moments in my life. Things I wish I never said. Things that if God were to say, you live forever just like that, I'd go, no, I actually would like a better, a better shot. If you're telling me you can remove some of this, I'll take it. I'd rather live forever like that 
than, than always dealing with this constant cycle of, how oh, come I'm not over that yet? I'm 36 years old. There's some things that you should be over. <laughs> I'm not. And I talked to a man uh, about a year or two ago, and he was 72, and I was going down the list of things I'm not over, and I said, please tell me you're over these things. I said, please tell me what age you get over these things. I'm thinking 40, 50, 60. He looks at me and he goes, well, I can tell you 72 ain't it. (laughs) So let me explain this with a story. And hopefully this metaphor will help us to understand why it was for freedom that Christ set us free. How Christ sees the beauty of that freedom. A few day, a few uh, weeks, years ago now, me and my family went to the beach. And growing up, I had never really flown a lot of kites, and so I'd always been kind of interested in flying a kite. And so we we got out there, and and I tried to build the kite and just massacred it. But my wife, who's far more mechanically inclined, inclined than me, built this awesome kite. And so, you know, I put it together, and, and Jonathan and I, my oldest son, we're, we're starting to fly this kite, and we're starting to get the hang of it. And I'm like, yes, you know, and, 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 and I'm looking at the guy flying the kite next to me. I'm like, Jonathan, let a little bit more string out. Jonathan, you've got to get higher than this guy, Jonathan. Come on, let a little bit more string out, you know, come on. And, of course, he's like, all right, Dad, all right. So he starts. I failed to tell him when to stop. And so he's letting the string out, and all of a sudden, I mean, we were the highest kite on the beach that day, and it was going higher and higher and higher. And so I, you know, I just think, oh, what a bummer, you know, what a shame. And I turn, and I'm, you know, let's go now. And I look over, and my son is devastated. I mean, the look on his face, I mean, he's seen his kite just fly away. And I knew what had to be done. With the theme of chariots of fire running in my head, I looked down on my, la- my feet and I said, we got to go, we got to go fast. very much guys I was running I outran the horses I outran the teenagers I mean I was running so fast that people sitting on the beach were going run Forrest run (laughs) off the string the kite swooned and jerked all around being blown by the wind up, down, all around. Pieces of it were falling off the tail I saw go by me. Finally, when the wind let up for a moment, the kite fell back and got caught in a sagebrush. Here I have probably sprinted nearly a mile. I stood six feet, six feet before the kite, and I couldn't grab it. I was hunched over, trying to catch my breath, hoping I didn't have a heart attack. And just then I felt the wind kind of pick up and I saw the kite kind of shaking in the tree. And I just went, no! And I jumped and I grabbed the kite. 
Never mind, I destroyed it in the process. I had the kite. And when I brought it back to my son, the look in his eyes, I was the hero that day. I was the sheriff in town. And as I reflect on that, here is the metaphor. The kite is us. We are the kite. The wind is the turbulent forces of this world. Most of you look intelligent enough to know exactly what I mean. This world has turbulent forces. The string is the Holy Spirit. The presence of God on earth today. Connected to us, within us, filling us constantly. Tied to us, deep within us. And the kite holder is Jesus. It's God, God the Father. It's heaven. As long as Jesus is holding the kite and I'm connected to the string, I can soar high and the the storms can blow, but I'm connected to the one who's holding me. It's a trust. A trust for the kite to fly in the high winds. Trust that that holder will never let you go. But without the restraint or the restraining. You catch it? Without the kite holder restraining the kite from blowing in any different direction, what happens? Like a kite in the wind, it blows all different kinds of ways, up and down, all around. As long as I'm connected to the string and the string holder, I can soar and glide through the wind and be perfectly safe as the winds of life beat upon me. But once I decide to free myself from the string and the holder, I can get blown here and there, thrown about by the turbulent winds of life, and pieces, sometimes good pieces, can fall off of me. When I am freed from the restraint, I am blown about by turbulent forces I cannot control. This is what the Bible calls living in the flesh. It's a force you cannot control. And that's the slavery to sin that Jesus so often talked about. Freedom in Christ is being led by the Spirit, connected by that string to the one who restrains us and frees us all at the same time. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Point number four. We serve in freedom for Christ. And then point number five. Please bow your heads with me for a moment. Because I want to set up point number five like this. I want you to imagine that you are seated at a table. Close your eyes and go there right now. You're seated at a table and sitting across from you, Jesus himself walks up, sits down, and takes a chair. And he looks intently into your eyes and he says, I have the power to free you. 
I have the power to release you. So I ask you this question. If I grant you freedom, what will you do with that freedom? If I free you, what will you do with that freedom? If I set you free, what will you do with that freedom? And I hope all of you would join me in quoting Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I'd like to make an invitation. Is there anyone here? It's a, it's a freedom of choice. Something you're not born into. Something you don't grow into by any means. Jesus is a choice you make. And in that choice, you receive something right away. The infilling of the Holy Spirit into your heart. Is there anybody here this morning that would like to make that choice? Please look up at me and say, I'm making that choice. I want to receive the freedom that God has for me. I want him to be the kite holder, restraining me, but also protecting me from the turbulent winds of this world. Look up at me if that's you. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. I'll pray if you could agree with me. Jesus, for these folks who looked up, I pray right now for the infilling of the Holy Spirit to flood their heart. That they would wake up tomorrow different from today and recognize something has been deposited into their spirit as a guarantee of their salvation. Lord, that they would wake up and feel the kite holder attached to them, guiding them, leading them, protecting them, saving them, bringing them into freedom, that sin would no longer dominate nor have dominion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Everybody have a great Memorial Day. And if you know someone who has either lost their life, well, you wouldn't know somebody who lost their life, but you, you know, if you know a family who has lost their life or a soldier who's actively serving, please invite them to your barbecues. Invite them into your homes. For those of you this morning who made that decision, I'd love to talk to you. So come on up and we can pray together and I can give you some next steps. If you have any other prayer needs, Gary and Julie up here, they're pastors here at the church. Come on up and they'll be willing to pray for you as well. Amen? Have a great day. God bless you. Take care.